This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, Mike Barnacle and Nicole Wallace, two first-class communicators, politically savvy, gifted writers, and so much real political, professional, and life experience. First, Mike Barnacle on Journalism Today, the 2012 race, and his inclusion in the new book, Deadline Artist. Then former Bush White House Communications Chief, McCain-Palin campaign operative, and now best-selling author Nicole Wallace on her new book, It's Confidential. Turn on the cruise control. Turn off the phone, my friends. This is an episode of Polyoptics you don't want to miss. Of course, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role that I played in the George W. Bush White House. And, buddy, it is good to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam. This is a week in which the GOP race really began to sort of congeal around Mitt Romney. You had Chris Christie's endorsement and then a pretty good debate performance uh, in Hanover, New Hampshire. The best Governor Perry could do was sort of make a big impact on the fraternity boys after the, after the lights went off. Yeah, that's what they were writing about uh, the following day after that debate in Hanover. But I'll tell you something, Josh. What everybody needs is a refresher course in political communication. It's about narrative. It's about connecting with people. It's about being a great writer and being a great uh, communicator. And that is something that some of these folks are missing. And that is what we have in spades today here on Polyoptics. Adam, you grew up and lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a long time, and now I'm in New York City. But, you know, from your college experience and my upbringing as a kid from 1965 on it is all Boston for me and from 1973 on the first time I could read and I could look at the metro section I could read columns by Mike Barnacle one of the most prolific most insightful and most thought-provoking columnists uh, at work in the country and it was hard for me not to notice as the Red Sox were taking their September dive and thinking about the metaphor that it represented from when John Henry and Larry Lucchino and Tom Werner took over the team early in the decade, they sort of felt for me like Obama was in 2007 and 2008. Hope and change, a great new beginning, and certainly 2004 and 2007 upheld that. But as Mike Barnacle joins us now, I wonder if the current regime that you watched implode, Mike, in September bears any resemblance to what you're seeing in Washington. You know, that's that's a very interesting metaphor, actually. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but all the elements, uh, many of the elements are there. They're quite similar. Uh, it, 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 it's actually a striking metaphor in a sense that uh, in the past couple of weeks, when I've been speaking to people, whether it's in Boston or New York or Washington, I've been in Washington a couple of times, you get the sense that when people talk about President Obama, that they begin with a level of sympathy toward him. They feel badly for him. And then they lapse into, boy, it's, I can remember how I felt election night. I was so, so happy for the country. I was so thrilled that I voted for him. And 
there's a sense of, you know, gee whiz, what could have been. And the sense of what could have been with the Red Sox, it was actually not could have been, it did happen up until about September 1st. I went to Baltimore for the last two games of the year uh, that they played uh, down in Camden Yards. And I was, by the second game, I was just outraged at the level of uh, intensity, the low level of intensity that they were displaying. And I was saying to myself, you know, well, they deserve to lose. They, they deserve to lose. Uh, they've concocted this consumer fraud on all of us as fans. If they don't care, why should we care? And I guess you could probably, a lot of people could probably translate that same feeling toward politics and President Obama, who I think cares deeply, yep. obviously. But the level of disappointment that you hear in people's voices about the president is somewhat similar uh, to the level of, it's not disappointment that people register when they talk about the Red Sox, it's, it's anger, but it, it's, a, it's a striking metaphor. Mike, now we've moved from September into October, and now that we don't have any baseball to watch, at least for us Red Sox fans, uh, we go to the multiplex, and there's a new movie out, it's called The Ides of March, George Clooney directed it, Grant Heslov uh, was the screenwriter, and when I was watching it, I felt obviously an immediate uh, connection back to the first great behind-the-scenes campaign film, The Candidate, for which you had a cameo role. <laughs> yeah. How did that come about, and, and what were your thoughts about watching this film compared to watching Redford and The Candidate? Well, I mean, uh, you, you, there's no way of avoiding sounding like a jerk when you describe experiences like this. I, I've, I've led a very fortunate life. Uh, the Candidate, in 1970, uh, when I did not know what I wanted to do with you my life. You were a speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy before that? Or? No, I wasn't a speechwriter. I did advance work in the Kennedy campaign. So did Belmar and I. But uh, the uh, director of... Da I, I, at that time, I had gone to California. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I ended up... I got a job as a speechwriter for John Tunney. That's right. Who was running for the United States Senate in California in 1970? I was about 12 years old. I, had, <laughs> I, I just had absolutely no business getting the job, but I managed to talk myself into the job. Yeah, I can do that. You know, I couldn't do it, but yeah, I can do that. Uh, and during the course of that campaign, because it was California and because John Tunney was based in Southern California, there were many people from the movie industry who wanted to lend a hand, you know, help them with commercials and stuff like that. And one of them, terrific guy, Michael Ritchie, had Director. just directed Downhill Racer, starring Gene Robert Hackman Redford. and Robert Redford. Yeah. And uh, I, I like to talk to people. And I was talking to him one day, and he told me that, you know, one of the things he would like to do, one of his dreams, was to do a movie about politics. That's great. And I didn't know it then, but they were he was halfway through planning what became the candidate. And he asked me if I would take a meeting in the Southern California parlance with Bob Redford. I say, yeah, sure, why not? Butch Cassidy, yeah, he's cool. <laughs> and uh, so I you know, took a meeting with Redford, and we've been friends ever since. And he put me in that movie, obviously. I've been in several of the other movies, little cameo parts. It's been a kick. And so... Uh George Clooney's sort of 
took the genre to a new level with this dialogue that you saw last week, didn't you? The, 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 the Clooney thing is another. We might as well continue the, you know, Mike is a jerk mode. <laughs> uh, last summer, uh, we took all the kids. Uh, they're not kids anymore, our kids. Uh, we, met, we met several of them in Europe. They had taken their youngest brother. Our two oldest boys took their youngest brother who had just graduated from high school to Ireland and France, took the train down, and we agreed we'd meet them in Lake Como. So we meet the oldest boys in Lake Como with their, our youngest son. And Jerry Weintraub, a movie producer, uh, produced all the Ocean's Eleven movies and, and many, many other movies. He was trying to get a hold of me, and he was sending me emails and in at Lake Como, where we were staying, for some reason or other, the email thing was all screwed up on my computer, and I would reply to his emails, but no reply would go through. And so finally, he called me, and he said, where are you? I said, I'm, I'm in Lake Como. I'm Jerry, I'm sorry. You know, the emails didn't go through. He said, what are you doing in Lake Como? I said, oh, we met the, the boys here, and we're having a good time. He said, uh, are you going to have dinner with Clooney? I said, Clooney? He said, yeah, George Clooney. He says, he's, you know, he's staying right up, he lives right up from the hotel where you're staying. I said, yeah. I said, no. I said, we're not going to have dinner with him. He says, uh, he says, he's got this political movie. He said, he asked, uh, you know, about you a couple of weeks ago. I said, he did? He said, yeah. He said, I'm going to call and tell him, can you have dinner with him tonight? I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, have him call me. Figuring, you know, yeah, fine. See you later. Hang up the phone. About five minutes later. Clooney calls <laughs> and says, you want to have dinner tonight? Yeah, fine, come on down. So I saw snippets of the movie that night at his house, saw the uh, final product a couple of weeks ago here in New York. Nothing like an Italian screening room, though, to see a soon-to-come movie. His is pretty good, yeah. <laughs> I would hope so, Mike. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as we were uh, getting ready to have you join us here on Polyoptics uh here on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, is my experience, as limited as it was, with with your work. When I was enjoying my time in Boston, I went to college there, I worked in the media. One of the professors that I had who was really impactful uh, in my education was a fellow by the name of Jim Thistle. Did you know Jim Thistle? Yes, terrific guy. Uh, just a, a legend. Uh, I, I put him on par with you uh, in terms of what I know about great stalwarts of journalism and and uh, great voice uh, in, in, in the media in Boston. But uh, he, he commended some stuff to us along the way, and one of them was an article that we read that you wrote in 1995 about this almost cinematic hit that went down uh, at, at this local restaurant, the 99 restaurant. It was a mob hit. Um, I love the 99. <laughs> you get your steak tips. You can eat yeah. everything you need there for under 10 bucks. But um, and, and, and that almost embodies a lot of what New England is about, uh, you know, great community and, and people coming together uh, around a great meal. But you, you were able to, to, to tell a story and it, it just always resonated. You could create this vision. You were there. You transported people with your writing, as you still do. But I wonder, you were selected, and this is one of the articles that was selected for this new book, Deadline Artists. Talk to us about that for a second. And some of the, I think there was one other, uh, one of your columns that was involved in that. Uh, 
book. Uh, it must be quite something to have been selected to be among so many great journalists for your gift of, of being able to transport people and, and create uh, a narrative that, that really hits home for folks. Well, uh, being included in, in that collection along with uh, a side of you know, so many other you know, truly great columnists is, is really an honor. It really is an honor. Uh, that particular piece, uh, the shooting, the mob shooting in the 99 restaurant in the Charlestown section of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, I happened to have been about a half a mile away down in City Square, Charlestown, uh, when it occurred, and got up there fairly quickly. And so that obviously helped in describing the scene where, you know, several mob guys go in and in front of about 37 witnesses having lunch decide to shoot these guys over, a, you know, they, they shoot them, they fall into plates of beef over a beef, you know, which, <laughs> you know, which was, it's, it was all right there. But, you know, the, the larger point that you raise, and I've, I've thought about this a lot, especially in the last 10 years, and not necessarily just that piece or just in Boston or just a newspaper column in Boston. I don't know that it can happen anymore. Right. Um, I was telling someone a few weeks ago that one of the things that I used to do regularly is something would happen, for instance, the mob hit at the 99, which was at lunchtime. And, you know, you'd take your notes and you'd see people, you'd talk to the cops and bystanders and, you know, you'd have a notebook full of stuff and you were ready to go and you were ready to write it. But what I always used to do on the way back to the Globe and would go to the office then, you didn't do it from home, there was... It's, it's hard to believe. You can't do it at a Starbucks back then, could you? No, that is a hard thing to believe. I mean, we're so used to all these incredible tools that have only been with us, really, 10 years, 11 years. Yep. Uh, this was before the Internet, before the explosion of the Internet, before all of that stuff. I would, on the way back to the paper, which was in Dorchester, uh, I would stop always at a coffee shop in South Boston, the Java House, right next to the courthouse. It was a routine. And I would go, take the cup of coffee, drive down Broadway in South Boston, and sit by the water and think about what I had just saw, think about the people I had just spoken to, think about the notes I had taken. Now, can you make the web edition? Yeah. Can you get it in for the web edition? Can you tweet about what just happened to tease it? No, I can't make the web edition. No, I'm not going to tweet about it. I'm going to think about it. I mean, it's worth uh, hearing a couple lines from that column because I, it, when you're a, a reporter at a desk and you've got a, a hard line sitting there and you're taking calls, you still have the ability to conjure these words that say so much just with a single word selection. And you say, the 99 is a popular establishment located at the edge of Charlestown, a section of the city often pointed to as a place where nearly everyone acts like Marcel Marceau after murders take place in the plain view of hundreds. Therefore, most locals were quick to point out that all allegedly involved in the shooting, the five slumped, slumped on the floor as well as the two morons quickly captured outside, were from across the bridge. And that word, morons, I mean, when people use it effectively... 
it's so compelling. And, you know, when you're sitting and doing your Morning Joe gig, it's tough to get exactly the right word that's going to be so persuasive. But I thought John Huntsman was awesome yesterday yeah. when he called uh, <laughs> the Reverend a moron for his uh, calling uh, Mormonism a cult. And, you know, great for him to be able to use that word out in public in the right way. Well, yes. And, and you know, we are in a certain sense, I think, uh, more afraid of language today than we have been perhaps ever. And, and I, you know, the politically correct thing, that, that I think that's overdone. But who, you know, moron, are we going to insult someone by using that word? But there, there are ways to use word. Like another great word is dope. Yeah. You know, what a dope. Uh, but we are afraid, we're afraid to use, we, we think too much about the, rep, the ramifications of words rather than, you know, the, the proper use of words. There's another column of yours that uh, my wife has kept with her since she was growing up as a kid in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, we looked at it this morning knowing that we'd be talking to you today. It was the story of Oasis of Hope in a City's Misery about uh, Arlington Public Schools. And as tough as things were outside, uh, inside it was a corridors of discipline. Uh, the kids were learning uh, and the place was, was well managed. You know, you wrote it in on... 20th September 1992, but could just as well be today, couldn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the things I, I think we've lost in daily newspapers is a sense of place where the paper is printed, you know, the region around the paper, and a sense of telling stories in newspapers about people. I was told years ago by one of the greatest newspaper editors ever in this country, Tom Winship, who was the editor of the Boston Globe, he used to tell me, kid, remember, people like to read about people, and people do like to read about people. And now we have, as we were just talking about, you know, we have 800 cable channels, and, you know, you get everything on your, you know, your wristwatch and your cell phone. There's no more news. We all understand that. But one of the things that has fallen through the slats are the stories about people who have hard lives, and there are many people in this country who have hard lives, especially the young, kids in school. Sometimes that piece, I'm just looking at it now, 1992, Lawrence, Massachusetts. Lawrence, Massachusetts is not only very much the same uh, as it was on, on this particular day when this was written in 1992, it's worse. Yeah, The conditions are worse. The kids are more endangered. And... I think a lot of it has to do with how you're brought up. When when you're a reporter or a columnist, how are you brought up? I mean, we, I was brought up, uh, you know, largely in the city of Boston and the city of Fitchburg after my father died. But in the newsroom then, everyone can name all the subway stops and the red line, the subway in Boston. And today, and this is not an indictment of anyone right. working there. It's just the way it is. It's now just a stop on a resume trail. You know, you stay at the Globe for a couple of years right. and move on to some better position. But you go back to Lawrence, Massachusetts, and you, 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 you Lawrence, Massachusetts, any place, any place in this country, and write a story about what life is like for these kids, and it's an eye-opener for a lot of people. And is it just the columnists, the Will McDonough's and Lee Montville's and Peter Gamses that are no longer creating that sense of place in Boston, or if you get outside of New York, where there still is a pretty healthy media culture going on, but if you look at a town where the mayor's been in office for a long, long time, 
the Globe and the Herald are both shrinking. There are no, there are so many fewer corporate headquarters. I mean, what is to give Boston the type of identity and soul that it had when you were writing three columns a week about it? And uh, you know, what what needs to happen to keep that community together and keep the focus on some of these stories? Well, I think one of the first things you have to do, you could never do. You have to uh, put some sort of parental control on the computers in the newsroom so people can't Google stuff. Uh, you know, you have to get young reporters that used to the idea of leave the building. You know, go out and come back with a story. You, here, come back seven hours from now with a story. And they say, what, what, what are you talking about? Just go out. Go out. There's something out there. Sit on a park bench and ask yourself, why is that guy wearing a soft hat? You know, stuff like that. Be curious. You, you, you can't invent that. You can't create curiosity. You're right. You should be curious if you're a reporter or a columnist, especially just coming into the business. I know it's difficult, but you're never, you're never, gonna, you're never going to be able to put the pulse of any city, the blood, the flow of any city into print or on TV electronically in unless you know you think about it unless you go out and experience it and you're never going to experience it sitting in a newsroom I'm sitting here uh, in Washington DC as we have this conversation blown away uh, listening to you speak especially as you use Lawrence Massachusetts as an example uh, everything that you're saying was at the heart of why I wanted to be a journalist when I was growing up and uh, when, when, I, when I hear you talk about the proximity to the 99 on the day of, of that event it makes me recall uh, getting good advice from great journalists in Boston about you should go you should go Adam to Lawrence Massachusetts that that mill fire that just happened is a really important story mm. why would I know that that was important I had no idea but uh, the folks who, who were a part of New England understood uh, in 19, what was it, Mike, 1994, Probably 94, <laughs> 95, around there, Aaron. Uh, Aaron Feuerstein, right? Yeah, yeah and, and Clinton uh, put him on the State of the Union yeah, address. Yeah. Exactly. But just thinking about the way that, that, that you would learn to be curious, you would learn to understand and appreciate what great journalism was and, and, and excellent storytelling from from the communities and the newspapers and the television in Massachusetts is what led me there. And uh, it's it just, it's it should be inherent to everybody who strives to be a communicator. And we talk about uh, political communication and presidential level optics and events and communication, but it all derives from that connection, that, that idea that curiosity will lead you to a story that you described there, Mike, that... Uh, it's worth listening to. People's lives are worth understanding and appreciating how it fits into what's going on for you in your life. But see, you were fortunate in the sense that, you know, you uh, you you worked with, were taught by the aforementioned Jim Thistle, who was the news director at a couple of Boston television stations. But when I say the news director at a couple of Boston television stations, he was actually more like a newspaper editor rather than a TV uh, news director, and he had a sense uh, of story. He had a sense of tell a story through a person's lives, through a person's words. And to compare the product that Jim Thistle used to be in charge of putting out and the people who worked for Jim Thistle to what happens today, and again, I'm not 
singling out any one station or any one city. But I mean, most local news but now... But it's the business it, model of local news now. Get kids for a couple of years while they're coming up and making their way to a bigger market. Yeah, it's not it, Tony Pepper or Jack Williams or Liz Walker. No, or it, Mike it, Barnacle telling it, you to get your ass out of the chair and get out of the building. And it's, it's a, what you watch, if anybody does watch it, uh, it's a cartoon. It's not news, it's a cartoon. You know, they have, uh, you know, 46 stories in the first three minutes of the, <laughs> the top of the 11 o'clock. I say, why, 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 why? <laughs> <laughs> Libya and then the fire truck and then what? <laughs> so let's pivot to, to what you're seeing in your, your pretty much daily gig on Morning Joe. And this week you were watching the uh, yet another debate, this one from Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, and surveying the current field of candidates and whether Herman Cain is going to have his moment or Rick Perry will possibly rebound and will anyone catch former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. But you were turning out your columns uh, at a time when people like Teddy Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton were dominating the national stage. And do any of these candidates uh, or who will have the choice of voting for next summer uh, and fall rise to the level of personality and ability to communicate the way some of uh, uh, those guys, both Democrat and Republican, were in the past? Well, obviously, President Obama has, uh, you know, real charisma. I mean, he's president of the United States in part because he did and because of uh, the way he could give voice to uh, people's yearning for hope and change. Now, We've already spoken about the crushing disappointment that many of his supporters are feeling today. Uh, on the Republican side, I don't see anyone uh, who can come close to the charisma or the appeal of those candidates from the past that you just mentioned. But do they have to, given the state of the economy and the state of the nation today? I am always increasingly disappointed watching the field of candidates, both Democrat and Republican, because of their, I don't think it's an inability, but their, their, their failure to talk about what is really, what the real root causes of our national illness might be today. I mean, I, you look at this old stuff from Lawrence, Massachusetts or whatever, and I, I can't help but thinking that we all grew up and we came of age, either professionally or personally or whatever, first job, whatever, in the 80s, 90s, whatever. We lived in, for lack of a better phrase, a layaway nation. You know, I mean, you'd put $15 down on a winter coat at the department store that you wanted to get someone for Christmas, and you'd pay $5 a week, $10 a week or whatever. You'd put it on layaway. Yeah. And I am... I know that this is because of the way I was raised, which was, you know, 600 years ago. I, un I understand that part of it. But if you stand in line today at almost any store, Starbucks, almost any store, and watch people swipe for the purchase, there's no, they've lost the meaning, in a sense, of the value of things. No cash changes hands. They just swipe the card for a cup of coffee. Eventually, we'll probably swipe the card for a new automobile or swipe the card for a house. But we've lost something there. And the candidates who run for office, they don't talk about these things. They don't talk about what's, what's happening to this country, what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years. 
the Occupy Wall Street movement that's going on now. I went down to Wall Street last week here in New York. I went to the Occupy Wall Street offshoot in Boston the other day, and part of it is shtick, part of it is theater, uh, but a large part of it, a substantial part of it, are people who are truly worried, truly concerned, not about the future, but about like the end of the week. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like the end of the month, that immediate. And uh, it, it, the problem is that you can't take all of the ills that they're talking about, all of the scratches, uh, the sores that they're scratching, uh, and put it on a bumper sticker or a sign. It's bigger than that. And we don't have anybody right now, including the president, I have to say, who is talking about how big it really is. That it's everything. Sure, Wall Street, the greed, the hedge funds, the, the the illegalities, the concocted instruments that they came up with. That you know they make millions and millions of dollars personally, and billions for their clients. Everybody gets that. But there's also the role of you can't deregulate or not look at an entire industry for a decade and not have something go wrong. And that's basically what happened in financial services, or at least part of it. But then you also have to lump us, citizens, consumers, into the issue as well. I mean, who, who says we have a constitutional right to have a 62-inch big screen TV? You know, what, who said that, you know, you have to, you have to put that addition onto your house in 2002? And you can finance it, you know, through your home equity loan. We used to think more about what we spent than we do today, or at least my parents did. Yeah. We don't think about these things anymore. Mike, I, I wanted to, to, to look again at that question of this uh, presidential race, the Republican field in particular. Uh, it's often said of candidates that you can't just be against something. It's not enough to be against the president's policies that you have to be for something. But I want to flip that on its head and ask you this question. Yeah, I, from what I hear and what I read, uh, it looks like it may be enough for the electorate to just be against something. That they're so dissatisfied with Barack Obama that that level of dissatisfaction transcends the level of dissatisfaction they have in an alternative candidate. They don't even know that there's a candidate that they could vote for right now, I think, in the Republican Party, but they're just plumb afraid of what they would do if they had to vote for the president again. He's cost them too much. He's too expensive. He hasn't delivered. So they're going to vote for whoever gets put on that ticket. Is that? Do you buy that for one second, or are we just too early in the process and that's just too cynical an assessment? No, I, bu I buy most of it. I don't think they would vote for anybody other than Barack Obama. I don't, th I, don't think, I don't think Rick Perry can become the next president of the United States, or Michelle Bachman, or Newt Gingrich. Uh, but watching Romney in the debate the other evening, uh, I was struck by, in 1988, at the Democratic Convention in Atlanta, uh, Michael Dukakis, then the governor of Massachusetts, Democratic candidate for president, said something that a lot of people thought was, you know, pretty absurd at the time. Turned out to be absurd for him when he said that uh, this election is going to be about competence, not ideology. Nearly every national election in our history is always about ideology. What do you believe? Uh, 
Uh, it's not about competence. And yet this year, it might actually be yeah. about competence. And I was thinking about that in listening and watching Romney the other night, who's really got his act together. And it might well be about competence in terms of, I can handle the economy. And he had one moment, I forget how he phrased it, uh, basically said, uh, you know, President Obama is well-intentioned, he's well-meaning, but he doesn't... Uh, and in that one moment when he said it, it struck me that if you go after Barack Obama with kindness rather than a shovel, uh, you're going to have very good luck. Because people like the president, they, and they want to like the president. And you can say that he's a, you know, he's a good man. He's tried hard, but folks, he's not up to the job. Right. There's, there's something there for anybody running against him. And whether Obama can take Ohio and Florida, Colorado, other battleground, Pennsylvania, other battleground states, or his opponent does, it's not about the fringe. It's about that middle 10%. And that middle 10% wants to hear a candidate, I think, uh, not go at the his opponent with a shovel. They yeah. want to hear civilized discourse. And, you know, civilized discourse and storytelling uh, is something that, for me, goes back to the mid-late 70s, the early 80s. A newspaper delivered on my driveway uh, a warm weekend morning or a weekday morning and being able to to look at a story being told uh, on the cover of a great newspaper and it's something that uh, I'll always cherish and I do miss a lot and Mike uh, thanks for coming on and rekindling some of that for a little while with well, us. I appreciate it very much thank you both very much Adam, we're honored to have at our microphone today uh, someone who worked with you in the Bush administration, somebody who followed uh, the Clinton administration, Nicole Wallace, author first of the best-selling 18 Acres and now its sequel, It's Classified. Nicole, welcome to Polyoptics. Can you tell us a little bit about President Charlotte Kramer? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Charlotte Kramer is a figment of my imagination, unfortunately, but I think she'll sound familiar to both of you. Um, she is the country's 45th president. She is a woman who was, um, who, who came to me after everything I witnessed in 2008 when I thought that, um, Hillary Clinton mounted what, what I thought was the, the closest presidential run that we'd ever seen a woman mount. And what struck me in her, especially after she went into the Obama administration, and what struck me as uniquely feminine was a woman's capacity to endure the indignities of public life and keep on keeping on. And so my my fictional president borrows some of that, some of, I find Hillary Clinton very stoic, and I find her very tolerant of the, um, you know, intrusive eyes of the media and of, of the partisans on both sides. So, so my fictional president has those things in common 
with um, with Hillary Clinton, but she's also uh, a creation of my own life in Republican politics. So fictional President Kramer is a moderate Republican from Northern California who ascends to the presidency from the governorship of the uh, great state of California. And the, the sequel that's just been out a few days now is... Um, about some of her trials and tribulations in her second term. She won she wins uh, re-election after putting a democrat on her ticket and running the first ever unity ticket that the country's ever seen. It it begs the question for Adam and me, how does author Nicole Wallace know about the details of of the White House specifically Oh, let's say page 211, where no author has never has ever described in greater detail the arrival of Marine One coming back from Andrews Air Force Base. You must have worked in the White House, didn't you, Nicole? <laughs> well, you know, whenever you have a privilege like that, I did. I did. I was um, fortunate enough to work in the White House during some pretty extraordinary times, and and I, I was there for President Bush from 2001 through 2006, and I never got over the wonder of that helicopter landing on the South Lawn, and I, I didn't um, earn a seat on that helicopter. And Marine One is just spectacular. I think most presidents feel like it's the best perk. Um, maybe that and Air Force One. But I, I didn't earn a seat on Marine One until I um, became the White House communications director. But for the rest of my life, I will never forget the first time I walked um, out on the South Lawn. The president knew it was my first trip on, on the presidential helicopter. And he threw his arm around me and said, let's go. And um, we walked out onto the South Lawn, and it was like walking on water. And I remember getting into that helicopter and looking out at all the people that gather to send a president off, and they're usually there to arrive him, uh, welcome him back as well. And so just bringing to life some of those things that can become routine for a president or a White House staff was just, it was such fun. And it's the kind of stuff that people ask me about at signings and, and um when I have a chance to speak around the country. Those are the sorts of things that really um, pique everyone's interest. You know, Nicole, uh, I think by virtue of the, the title of your, your first effort, The 18 Acres, it was clear that you were uh, making good on the promise of pulling back the curtain a bit uh, on the White House. And it is very much the what we call uh, the grounds of the White House. It's a large facility by Washington, D.C. standards, but it never seems quite big enough for all the things that we are asked to do and try and accomplish at the White House. When you were White House communications director, you did struggle with some very serious and difficult times. The Iraq war uh, was was really on the skids. Um, and I, I can share your uh, energy about being there and seeing Marine One take off and land uh, in that location or in Crawford or at Camp David, but not far away, certainly within earshot of the South Lawn Landing Zone, is the White House Communications Director's Office. Uh, and you were part of such an amazing team. I wonder, 
having had that experience and then uh, taking it back on the campaign trail again in 2008, uh, people are asking you all the time about you know, how much Sarah Palin is there in this character. Will you talk about that for a second? That was a really challenging time, wasn't it, the 2008 campaign uh, where you played such a senior role with John McCain and, and the uh, governor of Alaska? Yeah, you know what's funny, um, and, and with the benefit of hindsight, it all... Um, I think enriches your your experience, but in, that doesn't mean that it, it isn't incredibly difficult in the moment. But I really had this um, this this dreamlike experience during the Bush years, where although the times were inc- were excruciating, um, the, the the White House culture was 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 so enlightened. It, I mean, women were so elevated. Uh, Karen Hughes and Condi Rice and um, you know, Mary Madeline, and there were all these really strong, smart women role models, and I felt um, just so lucky to be there. You know, enter the 2008 presidential cycle when when our party was at such a deficit, and when we were running against a man who, whatever else you think of Barack Obama, he was an extraordinary figure in our country's political history, and it was near impossible to um, mount any campaign that would have given our side a, a fair shot at victory. So, you know, the circumstances and the times were so difficult. And then I was tasked with preparing Sarah Palin for her announcement speech, for her convention speech, and for her first national interviews. And That's a big honking deal. <laughs> I don't want to quote the vice president, but it's a big deal. <laughs> it was, um, look, it was, it's always a privilege to be asked to help your ticket and your party. Um, and and she seemed so fresh and so exciting. And I loved this whole concept of plucking someone from obscurity and thrusting them onto the national stage. It was a bold experiment. Um and in a lot of ways, it was exactly what the country was hungering for. But in a lot of ways, it was a failed experiment. I mean, she, um, and I talk about how my fictional vice president um, shares something with my, you know, real, the real vice presidential candidate for whom I worked. And, and that was this tendency to vacillate from really glorious highs on the campaign trail, moments where she really connected to really disturbing and troubling lows, um, either in interviews and, and in public where she made embarrassing gaffes um, or, or more disturbing in private where she was incredibly withdrawn. And in the fictional account, I go a step further and and um, and lay out an explanation for that behavior. In real life, I have no idea um, what caused that behavior from Sarah Palin. But in the fictional account, um, I write about a vice president who actually arrives on the 18 acres with a, a, a big secret that she's keeping from the president and the White House staff. And the novel is really the anatomy of a White House scandal. She is keeping a secret from the president, and that secret is that she's been struggling her whole life with, with mental illness. So the, the novel is about a grand jury investigation and an um, impeachment proceedings on Capitol Hill. And that could never happen. I'm just going to put it down. It's obviously fiction. I agree. <laughs> I mean, and, and you don't even have to look at 2008 
to find historical comparisons. Remember 1972 and the... Uh, appointment of uh, Senator Alan Eagleton to uh, Senator McGovern's ticket and his eventual withdrawal from that ticket. But I'm I'm fascinated, Nicole, by uh, not necessarily the secret uh, that you are going to play out throughout uh, It's Classified, but the picture that you draw of the usual sturm and drang of the White House. You have Vice President Tara Myers, uh, New York Attorney General, comes to Washington and she is immediately uh, smothered with these usual staff briefings and the need to uh, play out every potential question and answer of a potential trip, which also drew some parallels to what we're seeing even with Solyndra, this visit to uh, Wired Wind in Michigan. How many of these episodes from your time working with Governor Jeb Bush and working with President Bush did you pack into It's Classified? Well, you guys know how it is. I mean, the, the, the White House experience, the political experience is so searing that you're never free of it. I mean, you're never a person who didn't see or experience or witness life behind the curtain. So when you sit down to write fiction, you know, at least the advice that I got was to not be, you know, the reason I write fiction is because the things that I actually saw in real life weren't things that I would betray by, by writing about in nonfiction. But I also didn't want to create artificial scenarios and issues because I was told that readers are very clever about that kind of game playing. And, and so I tried not to be inhibited by what I knew would actually be the scenarios that a White House staff was dealing with. So um, to the extent that the, the crises are real, and the pace is real, and the volume of emails and Blackberries and calls and meetings, you know, all of that is intended to be very real. Um, and, I, and I've heard from enough, you know, Democrats and Republicans um, to feel confident that I, you know, did, did, did tap into something that anyone who's worked inside that pressure cooker can relate to. Um, because the whole point is how these very human women conduct themselves and do their very best um, under excruciating circumstances. You know, one of the things that uh, that I love about you, and, and, and I am very excited to have you on the show today, Nicole, because I'm, I've been a huge fan and I had a chance to work with you when I was at Good Morning America uh, on a couple of different occasions before I ended up coming to join the White House after you left. but My was... very first appearance on Good Morning America. That's right. Fact, you were there doing the hand-holding. I was so nervous I thought I was going to die. Trust me, I was so excited to, to have you in our studio and do that hit. Uh, and so much has come after that. But but what I want to commend about this book and about you to people who are listening to Polyoptics here on POTUS, uh, Sirius XM 124, is that you are one of the most down-to-earth and completely authentic and real communicators. You have an eye for creativity. Your reputation as a manager in the White House was one of empowering people. And uh, everyone on the team that I took over long, and we loved Kevin Sullivan as our, as our boss, but longed for that sort of really free and fun interaction that you brought to the job. And uh, I, I wonder, as you take a look at your career now, uh, separate and apart from the author that you have become, 
when you take on uh, the role of being a pundit or, or offering political commentary and analysis, it seems to me that you're the same person you always were. No changes, just honest from the hip, giving your ideas about things, but with that idea in, in mind that you know what goes on behind the scenes and how hard it is to affect you know, really important and impactful political communication. Is, is that... Is that a fair assessment, or are you trying to sort of help I think people? That's a very that's a very generous assessment. Is that like a a, a, a Mitt Romney softball to uh, to? Uh, <laughs> I'll let your listeners be the judge of that. But you know, I was asked at an event in uh, San Francisco. Um, you know, the, uh, a reader said to me, "Your character seems so transformed by life in the White House. In what way were you transformed by life in the White House? You know, did you ever feel like, wow, I can't believe I accomplished all these things?" And I said, "No. I said it is the opposite. The farther up the food chain you go, the more stripped down you are of any vanity or any sense that you know more than anybody else. And almost the more you know, because you know how the White." House structure is the the higher up the food chain you go often the, the longer your day the greater the burden the graver the information that you're trusted with and so by by you know my final um, you know posts at the White House um, were were really the most humbling days of my career I mean they were days when you know, when you stand in the Oval Office and, and give the president advice about how to communicate with the public about a war, you walk out of there and say, who do I think I am? What do I know? And, you know, it really is a job and a place that strips you down. And if you don't know who you are, and if you don't know that the, the only reason you're there the only reason that you're there is to offer your best judgment and, and your best advice without any regard for whether it will make you popular among your colleagues or liked by the president or, you know, have your horn tooted by the press. The only reason you're there is to offer your very best judgment because the stakes are too high to do anything else. And so I think a career in politics is, is the inverse of maybe – you know, a career in, in media where, where you rise up and, and by the time you're, you know, an anchor, maybe you think, wow, I figured this all out. I think in politics, the more you know, the more terrifying it is that people are actually listening to you. <laughs> hey, Nicole, you talked earlier about Condi Rice and Karen Hughes and Mary Madeline, and obviously you've written your novels about Charlotte Kramer and her current vice president, uh, Tara Myers. But how? what was your reaction to the news a couple of weeks ago with the release of Ron Suskin's book, Confidence Men, that women in the current White House, that of Barack Obama, where you'd think women would have a real chance to shine, in fact, they seem to be having some trouble. And as I look at where leaders currently uh, are in Germany and Brazil and Argentina with, uh, with heads of state, uh, what do you think of this administration and the role that women have played? And I don't know if you look forward to Nikki Haley or Hillary Clinton eventually running again, but will your fictionalized version ever come to pass? You know, the, these, the rumors that Suskin writes about have been peddled for many years, and I don't know if they're true or not. It doesn't appear that it's a prejudice that rises to the presidential level, but it, it does sound like the, um, the culture at the beginning of the Obama administration was a challenging one for women. 
Um, and again, the fact that the one that I entered into was dominated by Karen Hughes and Margaret Tutwiler and you know Condoleezza Rice, I think was more of an anomaly. I mean, I, I think the Bush years were 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 very different and very unique because I didn't have that experience in. Um, you know, on the McCain campaign. Uh, Jeb Bush also had a woman chief of staff. So I think the Bushes are, are um, for whatever else you, you say about their, their leadership style, they are incredibly enlightened when it comes to creating a workplace where women are not just welcome and equal, but they're elevated. So, I, you know, I have heard some of those rumors. Um, I think that women have to go one way or the other. And I think that what happens is women will sometimes complain privately about a work culture, but then when it's made public, they feel like the tough thing to do is to say, no, 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 I'm fine. I, I can handle it. I, I'm tough enough to endure anything. I'm one of the guys. And so I think until women can stand up and say, um, you know, I can handle it, but I don't like it. I think it'll be very difficult to shine a light on what are pretty obvious um, inequities uh, in most workplaces, including uh, many White Houses and political campaigns. And and I absolutely have my eye on Nikki Haley and, you know, Meg Whitman. And, um, you know, I'm a big Hillary Clinton fan. And, um, you know, I, I, I watch all these women, and I think that the first woman president is out there somewhere. She just she just might not know what her future holds. All right, Nicole Wallace, uh, former White House communications director, best-selling author. You're not getting away from us here on Polyoptics with at least giving us your best cut at this one. Talk to us about the current GOP 2012 field. Um, there are eight candidates who participated in a debate this week um, up at Dartmouth. It was a, a, a one-off style, seated around the round table with uh, Charlie Rose as the moderator. But we've seen a, a number of iterations on different cable networks of this, and you've lived through it before uh, from just about every angle. Uh, do you feel like this field is robust and you see a candidate that you like? And, and be honest with us when, when you talk about Rick Perry, because he seems to have come out of the gate strong and has fallen back quite precipitously. Yeah, to me, Rick Perry is a story about this moment in politics. And what we know from Rick Perry is that if you are going to enter the race late, you better be ready. And you better be good. And he so far has been neither. He has not been ready and he has not been good when the, you know, when he stood shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the candidates. I like him. I like everything I've heard about him. And I've been disappointed every time I've seen him. And instead of you know, sort of making an adjustment after the first debate didn't go very well. He seems to have made excuses, and I think that has that has served him almost as badly as the poor performances themselves. How about the 999 plan? Well, you know, I think Herman Cain is unique in that he hasn't been in politics enough to learn not to answer the question. And so what I loved about him last night is every time he got a question... He listened, 
and he tried to respond directly to the question. I don't think anybody else does that. Michelle Bachman is good, but she's always pushing a message point and a platitude. Rick Santorum is so, you know, such a chip on his shoulder about not getting enough airtime that he, you know, rants about whatever. You know, Kane is unique because he actually listens to the question, and he, he comes from business where to have successful interpersonal relationships, you have to listen, and you have to answer the question. And so, I, you know, I don't know about the 999 plan as a policy measure, but I think he answered questions about it in a direct way that, that, that will continue to serve him well. You answered that question exactly the way I intended it. Uh, no holds barred. Uh, Nicole Wallace, best-selling author of the new book, it's classified. You can uh, find more about her and her career at polyoptics.com. We're excited to have you, and best of luck to you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Nicole. Blew me away, Josh. I can't believe in one hour, Nicole Wallace and Mike Barnacle. Outstanding polyoptics. That's right, Adam. We usually get a great dose of Mike Barnacle most mornings on Morning Joe on MSNBC. What most people who see his daily commentary miss, though, is what a vast archive of observation and storytelling he has had since the early 1970s. Well, I want to thank our producer, Catherine Caperton, bringing us to air every week here on Sirius XM 124. And next week when you join us, the great Joshua King will be coming to us from across the pond. Is that right? That's right. Another trip to Dublin and London. Look forward to connecting with you uh, via transatlantic connection. We'll see you all next week here on Polyoptics, only on POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. POTUS, Sirius XM 124.